there are a couple things to mention up front, Al, before we get into the oh, conversation okay. about your book. One is about your last appearance on the Nat Uh-oh. Turner on the Nat Turner Rebellion. Oh, no, God. no, this is oh, all I'm good. In trouble. Oh, no, <laughs> no, not at all. Uh, there are actually, two things about it. But one is that a friend who is a non-lawyer but listener to this podcast went out of his way to mention how great he thought you were and how great that show was. So I, I put it in the show notes because I think it's just a. The Nat Turner Rebellion is a, is a gripping story, and you tell it grippingly. I and, love you. And the conversation we had, I thought, was really great because we also talked about Confederate monuments. And yep. I'm sure some of the stuff is, you know, we'll, we'll kind of go back over again today. Sure. Uh, but but it was really, I do think listeners who are at all interested in this conversation should should take a listen to that one if you haven't already because I thought it was great. I, I love you guys. I mean, <laughs> the Nat Turner, I mean, so, you know, we're going to hear a lot more about that starting in October when this, you know, new Birth of a Nation movie mm. comes out. I think it'll be really interesting to see how people react to this, you know, particularly in this Black Lives Matter world. Um, and I think there's going to be a great discussion about how we should think about Nat Turner, you know, somebody who used a lot of violence and then violence was used against him. And, you know, what were the alternative, if any, options? And how do we look at him vis-a-vis, you know, American revolutionary, you know, our heroes from, from the American Revolution? And, you know, how, how is he different or similar to, you know, George Washington and Thomas Paine? I think it's going to be a just a, a phenomenal moment of of public discussion and and sort of reconsideration of violence in slavery and challenges to it. Yeah, well, we called that episode brutality because of the kind of the foregrounding of violence in that story and kind of the ambiguous moral nature of of well, it was also that I think we mentioned how like living in the past is like living in a foreign country mm. in, in that um, in that show, because it was just so hard to get your mind into what it was like to live at that time when, for, when, for sure. when yeah, violence no. is so close to the surface. And also you have this whole system, which we're going to talk about today, right? The system, which is just unimaginable. Yeah, violence so close to the surface. And one of the things that, that I think is going to be interesting, and you know, I haven't seen the movie yet, but the, I've seen a couple of the trailers for it. And, and the, the one sort of point I'd, I'd have on that is, you know, they port, I think they filmed it down in like Savannah, maybe, and the you know so there are all these grand antebellum mansions. It looks like you know what you think of when, from Gone with the Wind and Tara and that kind of thing. And but when you you, you look at the actual pictures from you know the eighteen thirties and the the houses that were were around in the that, that where the Turner Rebellion took place, you see there very modest. Um, and I think that's another sort of piece of the story that that has gotten lost is like. There's the extraordinary brutality, and it wasn't even making tons and tons of money for people. It was sort of the subsistence level existence, I think, opens up yet another dimension on um, Nat Turner and on slavery and just how how poor everybody, including the slave owners, were. Because it's not just a story of the powerless, you know, like the Quentin Tarantino version, as, as, yeah. as awesome as I thought that was, I enjoyed it, but, uh, but of the powerless against the really, really powerful. It, that's it's exactly right. It's people who have very little standing on people who have absolutely nothing. And, you know, I mean, it's just sort of, there are all these ways of trying to get our mind into like what life was like back then. And, you know, like, I am delighted that I live in early 21st century America. I don't think I'd want to live... <laughs> Any time before about like 
30. Whenever we get antibiotics and, you know, like Novocaine and those sorts of things. <laughs> um, before that, no. After that, you know, air conditioning's icing on the cake. But, you it, know. it reminds me of a debate we were having last summer with some friends and and one of these friends reminded me recently about this debate of, of whether, whether things are getting better. It, you know, you phrase it at that level of generality and you invite all kinds of different mm-hmm. dimensions of better, right? And dimensions of the, of the problem. And, 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 and that debate actually was surprisingly, I don't know, emotional. What would you say, Joe? Were you around for that? It sounds vaguely familiar. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, people get charged up over a question like that, right? Because it's like better for whom, better in what way? Yeah, certainly. And, and it exposes some assumptions when, because sometimes people will answer that in a in a kind of fun, devil-may-care way. And some people <laughs> will say, well, you know, if you can guarantee me that I'm a male and white and wealthy, then yeah. maybe I would be willing to talk about this location at this time. But without those guarantees, I well, wouldn't gross, rather live anywhere than here and now. Well, the fun answer is things like, well, we've got iPhones now and... And we're exploring Mars with rovers and right. But it's that's not. But Christian, hold on. So, okay. so you said at the beginning that you had some prefatory things and you mentioned oh, one of them. Yeah. How many did you have? Uh, I had another. Oh, OK. And it's actually about birth of a nation. But since Al started talking about birth of a nation, oh, I okay. just wanted to let that unfold because I think it's, you know, one of the really cool things about this movie from what I've seen so far is, is I love that phrase birth of a nation. Like it's reclaiming it. We talked about this last time. I, I think we talked about this with you last time, Al. Yeah. Yeah. But, but it's, re, so. it's reclaiming that, that idea, but it's also substantive. Like what is, what is our nation? What is right. the birth of our nation? What marks what we conceive? And mm-hmm. I think we even mentioned this last time too, this idea that everything that people think of as what it means to be an American when they talk about our freedoms in the abstract most of what they're talking about is contained in the Civil War amendments. Yeah. Those are where the freedoms for are, sure. right? For and sure. So, so the birth of the, of the nation, like the, the crucible of, of American rights, seems to me to be the, the, the war for that was much longer than the Civil War. And that's one thing I really learned from reading your piece, right? That um, you nice. really felt that, like emotionally, like it started, you know, at least with the Nat Turner Rebellion, this period of violence and intellectual struggle and 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 then extreme violence. Um, yeah, for sure. I mean, so so some of the, and that's um, the positive stuff that's emerging from this, right? That the, you know, push the Nat Turner Rebellion to 35 years down and we get the, you know, 14th Amendment um, 36 years later, whenever. But I think there's another piece of birth of a nation that also suggests like, you know, the violence that is that is at the heart of a lot of American history. And so what you're talking about is the positive, the long uh, road to march towards freedom and equality. But there's another piece of this that that lies there, which is the centrality of, of violence, which is also maybe in our deep, you know, nation's DNA. Yeah. And, and it continues after the Civil War, right? I mean, the, For sure. the promise of those Civil War amendments is, is, you know, they're written down after the Civil War, but they, there's a whole series of violence thereafter, which maybe ironically, the original birth of a nation is a part of, right? Is a part of, I, yeah. I mean, yeah, irony of irony. I mean, talk about circular sort of stuff, right? It's a, it, the first birth of a nation then inspires you know, some of the riots and, and the Klan in the early 20th century. Violence inspires more violence, but it also is counterproductive in so many ways. Um, and that was something we talked about with Nat Turner was that like in the short term, I'm not sure that the violence didn't 
make the lives of many, many enslaved people much worse. Mm. But maybe that then led to the Civil War sooner than it would have other. I mean, you know, and then Thomas Cobb, right, the person who's I hope we're going to have a chance to spend a bunch of time talking about today is is sort of a great illustrator of that. Right. Yeah. Zealously pro-slavery law professor who, without Cobb and some other people of his sort of similar thinking, maybe Georgia wouldn't have seceded, maybe wouldn't have had civil war. Maybe you certainly wouldn't have had the termination of slavery as fast as as we did, right? So, some of the greatest (laughs) abolitionists were completely unintentionally people like Cobb, Thomas Ruffin. I've probably lumped into a lesser extent. I've got one more prefatory thing, but just to kind of maybe this is maybe it's not a footnote, but this is something to drop for a for a future show, maybe with you, Al, maybe with maybe with other people. But this idea of violence in America and violence as being especially American, like even not considering the struggle of race and equality there, you know, I read one time that, uh, Martin Scorsese was saying he was fascinated. Like all of his movies were about the American connection with violence and trying mm-hmm. to understand it. Even Kundun, the one about the Dalai Lama, it's like this trying to figure out what, what violence, what the role of violence is in our society. You know, look at our sports, look at our, uh, look at our movies. Uh, is there something special about America that, that celebrates violence. And I, I want to put that to one side because I, I, I think we want to spend our time with you just on... Yeah, let's put a pin in that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's... <laughs> As a, I said. It is a great... Um, it's a great question. Let me just footnote this for a second because um, I'm always interested in the, the folks who... I think Jim Whitman up at Yale writes some about this, right? Who think like, you know, U.S. very violent, death penalty is an example of that, obviously, through the legal system. And then point to places like Europe where there's like, it's a less violent. It's like... I mean, for sure now, but like, how does World War II, to say nothing of World War One, like fit into that sort of, right. you know, the bit, they're less violent in Europe, but I, I just don't get some of it. I don't get it. I mean, I guess it's areas of the world have drifted in, in different directions. Surely, or something. surely. And, and the connection between violence and culture and how, how it operates at a personal level and then at the level of the state. I think these are really interesting questions and the connection between them. I've had students in my legal theory class right before about sports and violence in particular and trying to look up the literature to figure out like what to, to evaluate different theories like a, a violent game like football. Is it like a uh, like a pressure valve and it really, or does it actually make people more violent? These yeah. kinds of things. Right. Uh, you know, how likely are people to get involved in street brawls? And is there a connection between that and the extent to which people are, you know, eager to go to war? Um, at you know, yeah, because these are such different scales. I mean, you, exactly you know, from from getting in a fight in a bar versus you know the atomic bomb, right, and everything in between. And, and and I think that you know, going back to Nat Turner, what makes the violence so I don't know what what made it seem more vicious when I was reading about it was the extent to which it was a basically a war to preserve a hierarchy that could only be supported through violence. Right. In the, in the long term, there's a sense in which it was. Uh, well, we'll talk about this in a second. When we talk sure. about, uh, you know, whether you could emancipate slaves in the state of Georgia or yeah. you had to take them out of state before you emanci- this sort of thing. Right. Gets to it. But, it's a great segue into the book. But so. I do have one more prefatory thing. About oh, my birth- God. How many of these are there? These are all great. Every one of these. Needs <laughs> talk about violence. <laughs> I'm about to smack you in the head. Well, how many more of these? Come this, on. I'm going to put this on the dust jacket of this episode. You know, uh, all of these are podcast gold dash Al Brophy. Yes. So no, the the last one is just about birth of a nation. I just as I was uh, getting together some links, I thought we would likely talk about for today. I I saw the news that the 
that the actor and director in this film, yeah, and I don't remember his name, uh, Nate, guy, Nate, Nate Parker, yeah. There's a brewing scandal about yeah. a rape allegation and a um, suicide, and and a suicide arising from those those events. Yeah. And I, I don't know. I I felt like we couldn't mention Birth of a Nation without mentioning this news. And, for, for sure, yeah. for sure, man. I mean, I think everybody's going to be talking about that. Maybe there will be something positive that comes out of that discussion as well, connecting you know, violence in uh, across time periods and trying to, you know, raise consciousness of folks as to all sorts of different kinds of race, gender. It, it, I'm going to be interested in seeing where that discussion goes. And I have no idea what actually happened or what to think of. I've got no judgments about it, uh, not really being that familiar with the story other than knowing that it's 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 another story in a what is an increasingly long line of stories now about women being raped on college campuses and whether the social response to that has been adequate um certainly hasn't in the past and you know what what expectations are between men and women on college campuses i, I mean one one of the things that i saw that and again i have not seen the movie yet um but i guess there's like a, a sexual assault that um, I, I think on Nat Turner's wife by a slave owner that um, sort of sets the the movie in motion. Mm. The the people who are more uh, attuned to issues of sort of literary uh, analysis than I am will probably have something interesting to say about that as sort of how the centerpiece sort of uh, of the movie relates to his own experience with with the court system. I mean, it's it's an interesting. Uh, and, and so central, and is as you know from you know, University Court and Slave deals with um, some of those really sordid sexual assaults as well. You know, there's a long, long history of sexual assault on campus. It goes back to before the Civil War and includes students assaulting enslaved women. And I think there's some. You know, I mean, I, I'm less interested in sort of the sensational aspects of this, but I think there's some pedophilia going on. I mean, it's just all sorts of kinds of things that um, are very difficult to, to, to gauge now, this distance 150 plus years later. But um, there are lots and lots of different stories to be told about the institution of slavery. Yeah, whatever you can say about the adequacy of our response and our, and our kind of interpersonal ethics these days, you know, that's a time where there was basically no or very little, and we can talk about these cases, the like state versus man case and others, but there was very little accountability for the integrity of slaves, right? And your your responsibility toward slaves. And let, let's just say Al's book. I mean, you mentioned it a couple of times, but this is about Al's book that we're going to talk now. Yeah, yeah that's our, our our main inspiration to, to have the talk today with Al to, was to converse about his newly published book, University Court and Slave, which is uh, I've only been able to dip into little pieces of it and and it's amazing. I'm I was uh I I sort of pre-ordered it and got it and was very excited when it arrived um uh, a week or two ago. Um so here's the question I want to wedge into the the legal materials, right? Cuz because the book is about so many things in and including um legal reasoning about the institution of slavery in the period that the book covers from 1830 to 1860 and a little bit beyond. So Al, how would you explain to someone who hasn't thought at all about the jurisprudence of slavery before 
if they if the person comes to it untutored and says, you know, it seems to me like the logic of slavery would tell you that a master has the legal right, the privilege, um, to uh, kill the slave without any legal repercussions. Yeah. Um, and I see mentioned in a number of places in the book that I did that I did encounter that 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 it turns out that isn't true. How could it? How could that not be true? So can yeah. you help help me help me right, understand right, that? And I think right. that's going to yeah, be no, a way a, into a, the case. That's a, it's a great that's a great um, sort of arrow into the heart of slavery um, into sort of unpacking the sort of institution of slavery. Right. So s- what we usually think about slavery is it uh, allows the owner to have what Justice Ruffin of the North Carolina Supreme Court said in 1830 is uncontrolled authority over the body of the slave, right? That that's the the center of logic of slavery is that the owner of property can do whatever the owner of that property wants to do. And, uh, you know, we as property professors know there's some restrictions, right? You can't store gunpowder in a, you know, on your property in a city or something like that. I mean, there are other examples. That's the classic one. But in terms of destroying property, like if I own a log, yeah, um, I could it. I could put it I can burn it I can I can carve it into something I could give it to somebody else and in fact as you're exactly correct there's very little protection for enslaved people uh, there are very few instances in which you know somebody who viciously beats an enslaved person is going to be called to account and there are a lot of instances where somebody literally beats enslaved people to death and there's no prosecution and very little even in the way of investigation but there are a few instances in which owners are prosecuted for that and i think the the way to think about that is there has to be some control um, on the violence in society, that they're, you know, as enslaved people are uh, their property, but they are also subject to state regulation. So, and this comes out in, I think, two different ways. One is that we don't want to have owners killing other human beings and not being at least in some way held accountable or potentially held accountable for that. So there are, there's a small number of prosecutions for slave owners who, who kill uh, an enslaved person. The other way that comes out is, and I think the state is, is much more interested in this second example, they don't want to have people treating enslaved people as though they're free. So there's all these cases about, you know, a lot of times it's Quakers, but it, it isn't always, who are the nominal owners of of enslaved people, but they sort of let the slaves, you know, work on their own account, do whatever they want, not be held in what we would think of as slavery. And that's another instance in which the state has this very strong interest. And it's like, we don't want to have people being held in quasi-freedom or quasi-slavery. Both those phrases are used. They're bad examples for other enslaved people, it tends to break down the institution of slavery. seems like there are two different theories of the slave going on here that are yeah. in tension. And one of them, you know, you can explain, I think, some of the limits on the kind of state versus man privilege. Yes. On kind of the same grounds you would explain animal cruelty laws. You know what I mean? That, sure. That the state, you know, people have a revulsion against violence toward living things. 
and you know you, you don't have to be um, a, a radical animal welfareist these days to, you, you don't need to support to an animal cruelty law. Right. Exactly, right? Right, and, right? And we've actually had shows about that, the kind of different attitudes people have toward, towards animals and how they manifest in different kinds of laws. Hey, hey, and let me just footnote this, right? So after the Civil War, the anti-slavery societies often spin into anti-animal cruelty societies. It's like they, you know, they've like, we've got the, we've accomplished one purpose. What are we, you know, what's the next sort of expansion hmm. of humanity? Yeah, I mean, it's anti-cruelty rather than, in the animal front, pro-liberation. You get animal liberation much later on, right? The idea right. that the animal is a, uh, is a subject and not just an object. So that's a possible rationale, that this anti-cruelty rationale. Right, but, but it doesn't explain all of these laws, like the ones which says you can't treat your slave too well, right? right. Or one reason not to treat them too badly is that other slaves might see it and then may, there may be a revolution. So, so one view of it sees the slaves as people who are capable of observing situations and communicating amongst, amongst one another and basically seizing their own liberty. And there's a fear of that that animates, and that you don't see in animal cruelty laws, right? This is the view that law has to take of slaves as people, right? Like us, <laughs> you know, like the people making the laws in order to stop certain kinds of harms that you wouldn't have to, uh, you, you wouldn't have to have that point of view toward animal cruelty laws. Sure, sure. And, 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 and just footnote this, the protection against murdering enslaved people is, I think, somewhat derived from the humanity, like we you shouldn't be treating another human being, another of God's creatures in that way. But I think part of it is also, we just don't want to have people running around using that level of violence, committing murder, right? I mean, I think, and, and to turn back to the example of the Nat Turner Rebellion, in the wake of the Turner Rebellion, you had some of the military authorities coming in and saying, you got to stop this, un, this violence against enslaved people, stop killing them, in part because they were trying to restore order. I mean, the, the idea of just people having these random or semi-random acts of violence, I think, tended to call into question all of sort of property rights. There, part of it's a humanity, but part of it is also just it's a theory of a well-ordered, regulated state. But there, there again, you see that duality, right? Because yeah, uh, yeah. even in animal cruelty, one of the justifications for laws against animal cruelty is that people who are cruel to animals turn out, you know, they, they graduate right. to cruelty to humans. And, and so you don't, it's kind of the same thing. You don't want people just running around committing acts of violence because those acts of violence will then spread. On the other side, you have, uh, no matter how many dogs or other creatures someone goes out, you know, cruelly to kill, the other dogs don't see that and decide to rise up against their human masters, right? But but the the very humanity of slaves is what gives them that capacity and therefore pose that danger. Because I don't think you can expa- explain on, certainly not on humanitarian grounds, the laws against being too nice to your slaves, right? No, I don't, I don't think any part of that is, is humanitarian. I think that is, that's a, a sort of straight line. We need to have a well-ordered state. And while we generally respect the property rights of owners, if that owner, as a property owner, is not treating the enslaved people as an object of property, that e- even in those instances, we will not respect that owner's property rights. Sorry, there's a, this, it, this was a great time to be a wealthy property owner, but even in, in that time, if you were using your property in a way that tended to undermine the state, we would regulate that. Mm. So one of the things that we see, and, and this is this will you know, ties back into all this 
you know, the attempt of Georgia to, to and many other states to restrict emancipation of slaves in, in the wake of the Nat Turner Rebellion. There was a lot of complaints that slave owners were not sufficiently disciplining slaves. And was, that was one of the complaints was like, you know, if uh, Nat Turner's owner had been um, tougher on him, he wouldn't have rebelled. Yeah, see, this is why it strikes me as such a morass that you, to, on the one hand to say that all the concerns that you guys have been articulating about unbridled violence perpetrated by the master against the enslaved person, um, that makes sense. But, you know, Ruffin's observation of, in, in State Against Man that you know, uncontrolled authority over the body of the slave is critical to the very conception of slavery, right? Yeah. That the notion that you're going to, that there can be only one will and that will is the master's will. There isn't room for another will in this equation, right? Um, for sure. Re- requ- given that we know that it is an enslaved person, right? Violence is going to have to be part of the equation. It just has to be. So to to, to try to Hold in your mind at one time, you know, you need violence must necessarily be part of it, right? This, and so you'll be doing things that if you did them to another free person would be a battery that you would be civilly liable for as well as criminally likely to be prosecuted. You just walk up to someone on the street and start beating them, right? You're going to be arrested or sued or what have you. That's necessary to this uh, to Pre- this relationship because, as constructed. Right? Precisely because that violence makes a slave to you of the person that you attack, right? That, that's that's one of the chief justifications, right? That you are, to satisfy your own will, taking right. away someone else's humanity. Right. And, and so yet it's that very presence of humanity in the slave which requires uh, which requires that kind of violence. That's That's why it's such a strange thing to try to hold at one time, right? That violence is both necessary but limited. Mm-hmm. Um, and to try to find the location where there's uh, where um, there oh suddenly there's too much yeah right? uh, although so so but my I guess my point would be there you you go a really long way before somebody says well actually that was too much violence right there's lots of people who are um, viciously viciously beaten and and including some who die of that, those beatings. And then there's, there's still no prosecutor, right? I mean, it's like, it's a, it's a very limited number of instances in which the state steps in and says, Hey, that's too much violence is rough. And even after, you know, going a long way in state v. man in 1830 to say that there has to be this uncontrolled authority over the body of the slave. There's a prosecution of a, of a white man for having killed a slave I think he owned or was in possession of and says, well, that person's behavior did not belong to that of civilization, that it was I mean, he was outside the bounds. Why did the prosecution and I guess one one another way to tackle the mystery or, or to, to name the mystery would be to say, why was there even a prosecution in state against man? I mean, yeah, maybe that's question. one of the most surprising it, things about it. It's, it's, it's a great it's a great question. So 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 my Chapel Hill neighbor, Sally Green, has written a, a really nice piece on this that goes back and examines the the situation on the ground in New Bern where where man is is tried. So you'll recall he had rented this woman, Lydia, and then he was beating her and she ran away and he shot her. And so Lydia's owner is the person who mm. ginned up that support for the prosecution. 
you know, you may also recall that at one point Ruffin says something like, you know, this is a criminal prosecution and I'm not going to address whether there's a civil liability that the owner could sue the man, the renter of Lydia for for damage um, to property. For like mm. conversion. Yeah. For conversion. Yeah, for sure. Because he reduced, you know, I mean, I was, it's gruesome to speak about it in these terms, but he reduced the value of Lydia by injuring her. So, so it, that is a great way of getting into State v. Man, that it is actually, in some ways, the prosecution is, a, is the result of a dispute between two white people. And what you have here is the owner of Lydia taking up sort of her side in this through the prosecution. And I think it's a sort of, it's an interesting, there's a whole literature that um, scholars are now exploring. Um, Martha Jones up at Michigan, uh, Leah Vandervelde at at University of Iowa, a lot of others are working on this, where they look at suits filed by sometimes slaves and sometimes free people of color in in the Old South. And they're, you know, sort of like, how is it that that they could ever file lawsuits, you know, to claim freedom, you know, lost wages or, or, or whatever. And so, you know, there's this sort of now fascination with the very small number of cases where an enslaved person goes to court to seek justice or a free person of color goes to court to seek justice. I don't think that's the central tendency of Southern law, but but it's an interesting and it's they're worth it looking at. And I think one of the things in the cases that I've looked at anyway closely, a lot of them are it's actually you'll have some white person taking up the cause of the enslaved or free person against another white person. And I'm wondering if this is really more about, you know, affluent white person versus affluent white person through the vehicle of um, of slave or or free person. In a in a weird way, it's like an echo. It's echoed in the in cases like Shelley against Kramer, which, if I recall, maybe it's not Shelley, um, but there were there were cases where the way the property law question gets teed up. So a white person says, "You're impinging on my ability to sell to a person who isn't white," and that's why the court right. should address and that, the issue. And that's all of a sudden the the vehicle. Yeah, no, it's. I mean, I guess this it, it restores our faith, if that's the right word, in the insights of the illegal realists and the, the critical legal studies and critical race folks, which is, you know, um, if you if you're going to seek justice in courts, you, you want to have, you know, you want to be an affluent uh, white, probably male plaintiff. Right. Um, and and there's a lot of insight into into who gets hired as lawyers. Also, because I think that the sort of translates um, is very interesting stories about during the era of Jim Crow, right? African-American plaintiffs seeking justice would be like, well, I want the white lawyer. John Hope Franklin's father, who was a lawyer in Tulsa during the Tulsa race riot, writes a lot about that. Why it was it was a real struggle for him to convince he was a great lawyer, but it was a real struggle for him to convince African-American plaintiffs to or clients to, to use use his services. We should do another podcast on Shelley and the lead into Shelley because these sort of racially restrictive covenants are really super interesting. I've been been doing some work on on um, the litigation at the ground level in in Oklahoma City. There's a raft of these, dozens of these suits, 
over racially restrictive covenants. And um, some of the cases are by, you know, white plaintiffs. And some of them are actually by African-American plaintiffs to say, like, I ought to be able to buy this property. And you see the sort of seeds of the Shelley constitutionalization of this in in the local courts in Oklahoma, where judges are saying, like, hey, uh, just to be clear, I'm not in favor of race mixing, but like the constitutional wow. property rights of everybody must be respected. Um, and some some really interesting sorts of, you know, judges who, for whatever reason, maybe they're up for election or something, want to make clear, I'm just as racist as everybody else. <laughs> but um, I want to respect the wow. rights of of the um, African-American. Well, that's, a, that's a good bridge to, to, to the rest of the book, because it, it, that's such an interesting attitude because it mixes such a regressive view of of race and humanity with a very progressive view of yeah. constitutional, of constitutional law, law right i mean because yeah. because shelley yeah. is is quite the quantum leap in in terms of the public public private distinction oh. and and how it conceives of state actors and getting to there is uh you know is a if, real if, struggle yeah if you and don't it, want to get there you certainly didn't have to right yeah, and, and it's not clear in, you know, when is Shelley's, what, 1948? It's not clear in 1946 <laughs> that anybody's going to go there. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah. Shelley is a, it's an amazing opinion for so many reasons. And you see that distinction between judges' internal moral compass and the decisions they issue, uh, right? Robert Cover has written just, I think, probably the best book ever written in legal history, Justice Accused about precisely that issue of anti-slavery judges who are issuing pro-slavery decisions. But but you can see the flip on that from some of these Southern judges, there aren't a lot of them, but some of them who are, you know, early on, obviously pro-slavery, but are issuing anti-slavery decisions. There's some of that's in Georgia. I think Lumpkin early on is doing some of that where he's like, yeah, you know, the law is sort of anti-slavery and I'm not really enthusiastic about that but I'm going to uphold it. And there's also this guy, um, John Catron, who's a, in the majority in Dred Scott. And he's even more viciously racist than Chief Justice Taney's opinion, if such a thing can be imagined. And it, I couldn't imagine it until I read um, Catron's opinion, even more mm-hmm. vicious. Um, and yet when he, so, I mean, nobody thinks he was anti-slavery anything, but but he issues an, an opinion in, in uh, I guess it's Tennessee, where he's like, "Look, uh, just to be clear, I'm in favor of slavery, but this enslaved person was freed via will, and he and we have to follow that will." Hmm. Well, that's that's the connection I want to explore because this is the really the focus of the this book this this period from the nineteen uh, from the eighteen twenties to the beginning of the Civil War. Yeah, yeah. Where there is uh, this this connection between kind of philosophies and views of the African as a person, and then different understandings of the law, which are, I keep thinking of Brian Tamanaha's work about how the formalists weren't so formalist, right? Because you do see strains yeah. of formalism in these opinions, but you also see an awful lot of consequentialism. And as you point, you know, one of the big themes of the book is there's a lot of kind of empiricism in history that, empiricism, that, is, that mixes in interesting ways. History. Yeah. 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 And, and so, you know, the two chapters I focused on um, from the proofs that you sent along were the were the chapters on Lumpkin and Cobb, the two founders of the law school where I teach. Right. And, and these guys were, well, <laughs> well, let's let's just say not they didn't have very progressive racial views. And in fact, if, if there is an academic champion of slavery, 
And if you had to choose one, it would surely be Thomas Cobb, right? Yeah. I, I mean, Thomas Cobb's an inquiry into the law of Negro slavery is surely the most important pro-slavery book ever written. Um, and it's 1858, so it's, yeah. 20, it's 27 years after Nat Turner's Rebellion. Yeah. And so you've got, which is, you know, where, what are we 27 years separated from? 1989. So, so for folks listening who, like, it's the late Reagan era to now, right? Yeah. It's the same distance as Nat Turner's Rebellion to this, the book that you just named by Cobb. So that many years of all the thinking and backlash and action and concern and worry and retrenchment of slavery in reaction to revulsion at slavery, which is growing in some places, right? The, the commitment to it is growing in other places. So Cobb's book comes along and it's sort of this crowning achievement of pro-slavery thinking, which is pulling together years, almost 30 years of action and thinking in in law schools, uh, such as they are in courthouses. Courts, legislators. There's an occasional novel. I'd love to chat, chat with you about that as well that he draws on. And then, you know, all the pseudo-scientific racism, the, you know, black people and white people have separate racial origins. I mean, there's a it's extraordinary the sources that Cobb draws on there. Well, it's this weird. It's this weird mix of. Well, I mean, there's this. There's religion, right, which is very strong yeah. and axiomatic. So you know, anything written during this period, almost, you know, you you kind of drop a religious axiom into it, and it seems to change the whole flavor of the thing. And it's like you you can't argue with it, right? Because it's it's religion. It's religion. Yeah, yeah. It's what so, I believe. Yeah, exactly. Believe. And people just take it as an inarguable starting point. So there's, there, there are the religious elements. And then there are these big histories, which involve, as you point out in the book, traveling to distant libraries. And, and so I don't know how, you know, how rapid dialogue was about the historical accuracy of these studies, just because of the expensive research. But anyway, there's, there's that element. Then there is the precedent element. The people he's citing, um, you know, Cobb citing or, you know, the like Harvard professor, you know, he cites Agassiz citing Josiah Knott, who's at the university, what becomes the University of Alabama Medical School. I mean, I think these are the people who are believed to be at the forefront of of sort of, you know, science, anthropology, race. And it's all driven toward this idea, right, that the I, I, it's the right word here, um, blacks in general, or is it Africans? You, you know what I mean? Like, like he's making a study of a particular kind of human right. from Africa. I mean, I, I think and, it's people of African, of sub-Saharan African descent. And right? I don't know how careful he is and in, in, in how careful not, those others were in, in defining, you know, whether it's, yeah, I, I assume not, but you, you know, you don't know because the study goes back to Egypt and it covers all kinds of, and it seems of a piece with this, with this drive towards showing that this is a group of people who who maybe one day can be, you know, like whites and govern themselves, but certainly can't do that yet. And in fact, their best characteristics are brought out in a condition of subservience. And and, and you point out, I, I forget if he referenced this or how he was involved. With, there was this novel about traveling a, a slave, a slaver and his slave traveling to London and saying... That's Billy Buck or the slaveholder abroad, which is is written by... Um, somebody who's on the um, Georgia Supreme Court, this guy Ebenezer Starnes, and it, it's like it, it is literally the worst name. novel you will ever <laughs> yeah. read. It's, it is terrible, um, <laughs> and it, but it but it, it is it's but it's transparent, right? So it's the story about 
fictional character who takes a slave to London and, you know, sees the horrors of how free um, workers are treated. And then, you know, abolitionists are trying to free the slave and he can't wait to get back home to his family on the plantation. And I mean, it's atrocious literature. <laughs> the idea of a guy named Ebenezer Starnes writing a book essentially like the ghost of uh, of post-slavery yeah, yeah. future. And he's visiting all this and saying, oh, I don't want that. Take me back to the Christmas dinner with the turkey around and, the plantation. But, but get this, right? So Starnes, in addition to this terrible literature, also is conducts a sort of semi, you know, empirical study of crime by people of African descent in slave states and in free states. He writes to governors and tries to collect, you know, evidence of of crime um, north and south and then, you know, puts that together with an argument that like that the Africans highest place of culture is under the tutelage of the great white man. And so, I mean, it's just, it's, it's just unbelievable. And Cobb draws on that also. This is one of the ways we know that this was written by Ebenezer Starnes because there was initially some, used to be some question about who wrote Billy Buck. Cobb is talking in, in the treatise about how he's drawing on the great justice Starnes's work. Mm. Yeah. It's, it's terrible scholarship, terrible empiricism, terrible literature, but it's useful for one thing, which is to get inside the minds of these people and to be able to reconstruct the world of hierarchy. And, you know, this is as far as we can get away from Jefferson's all people are created equal. Well, let me ask this, though. What makes it terrible scholarship? Like, how does one recognize terrible scholarship in one's time? Because what I mean, I I certainly agree with you. I mean, I I think it's atrocious. Nobody's defending this now, but (laughs) like, why, 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 what is it that makes it so bad? Other Um, than the, other than the result, what Cobb marshals is some, some, you know, some natural law theory to respond to those people, some consequentialism, some economics, some historical study, some precedential study. It's kind of, hits all the checkboxes of even modern legal. And and frankly, one of the, one of the claims about the benefits of slavery for the enslaved person, um, was was trotted out as recently as Bill O'Reilly's response to the First yeah, Lady's yeah. observations yeah. at the Democratic National Convention right. about the fact that slave labor was used to construct the White House. Bill O'Reilly's response was how well they were treated. Yeah, it's yeah, no they accident. Were, they were fed yeah. well when, yeah. they, when they were at the White House. But then, like, did you see this piece? Like, somebody followed that up. And they're actually, they weren't actually fed well, but that, that's a, like the, um, the, le- the layers here are, are, are so rich. Yeah. So let me address a couple of these things. So some of it, right. You can just look at the, um, you know, Starnes's work. So he, e- he emails, he writes governors, in, you know, to get, um, data on African-American crime, North and South. And of course, as we've just been talking about a lot of the owners of, enslaved humans in the South are not going to be reporting crimes. If some, if there's a a slave is involved in a crime, they're, you know, viciously beaten. Um, so, I mean, like you're not even getting, going to be getting good. The, The fact that there were virtually no slaves prosecuted for murder in Georgia, but, um, uh, you know, a higher percentage of, of Afro free people of color being prosecuted for murder in Massachusetts doesn't tell us anything because the, I mean, the, 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 the government in the slave states is not collecting that data, right? So, the, so some things that are really just like at the C spot run level 
of of bad <laughs> use of data. But but the another thing that's really interesting and um you know that the Cobb draws on is a bunch of um writing about what happens in the West Indies in the wake of emancipation there, which goes on in the in the early 1830s. And so, you know, this famous debate between Thomas Carlyle um, and John Stuart Mill. And Carlyle's like, yeah, you've got to have slavery because look, in the wake of emancipation, productivity crashes demographically. Um, there's like a decrease in I mean there's all these sorts of arguments that 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 Carlyle trots out based on data to show that um, uh, emancipation was a bad idea. And then Mill comes in and says, like, I'm sorry, like, why do we think that that's going to be the measure of um, that? Like, you know, the amount of sugar being produced in the West Indies should be the measure of um, welfare. Part of I think the problem is that the people who are doing the, the putting in the values into this calculus of slavery, good or bad, are erasing completely the value to the enslaved people. It's just, well, do we make more money off of the West Indian islands if there's slavery um, or freedom? And, the, you know, shockingly, people, once they're free, are not going to work to produce money for, you know, their owners, their former owners, as hard as when they were enslaved because they're not going to be beaten you're asking, like, why do we know this is bad? Because, like, we can look at it and say, but you're not taking into consideration the right values. People at the time were making that argument, right? There was a deeply empirical argument made by the pro-slavery group, and then there was a deeply empirical argument made by the anti-slavery group. So you've got, like, his really interesting, exciting, understudied book William Goodell does called The American Slave Code in Theory and Practice, um, and right. So it's a, it's a wonderful sort of like I'm I'm Goodell's like I'm going to look at how this works in practice on the ground. And his argument is he looks at lots of reports of cases and of newspaper accounts of enslaved people being beaten to death and, and viciously beaten. And it says when you take a comprehensive look at this, the utility of slavery is much less than the harm. I, I'm kind of interested, though, in whether there is more than politics, like you say, they have the wrong values. And, and, if, and if having the right values is what's necessary to criticize something as bad scholarship, then you worry that the, that the well, and let me put it this way. I'm also glad that you connected it to Bill O'Reilly because I, you know, in, the, in the modern debate of like, you know, why, why do we have this whole Trump problem? <laughs> like, how, how have we gotten to this point how, that the Republican Party has imploded? You know, my own pet theory, well, there's this broader kind of pendulum theory of politics. And the, I think the Republicans are, party is now on the kind of far swing of that. Uh, but the, 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 the other point, though, is that the entire nature of the GOP coalition for the past 20 years has been the gradual erosion over the normal tools of legitimation that one would use. That's an interesting. And there simply is, there's simply no way within their kind of rhetoric and logic and values right now to delegitimate a candidate like Trump uh, for a majority of that coalition. You know, there, there, are, there are obviously groups that have broken off, you know, your libertarians have, have broken right. off and others, but, but they don't have tools to, to basically to say, this guy's a crank, you know, because they'd be criticizing themselves. They'd be, right. And, and, and all the tools you would normally use, like result, you know, resort to particular kinds of facts or to certain kinds of authorities, those have right. been, 
you know, taken away his tools. So it's like Wiley years. Coyote when he's holding the anvil and looks down and realizes guys, he's run past the end of the cliff. Yeah. Right? Like, shoot. Riot. <laughs> <laughs> what do I do? I'm right. holding this anvil and the ground's gone. Right. <laughs> and it turns out looking down is the way to bring the whole thing down. Yeah. And so part of it is the idea that anytime we're, you know, even if it's an academic point or whatever kind of point it is, there's a community which has tools to legitimate ideas or to delegitimate them, right? And what are, what tools are available at any given time? And is there a way to talk about, you know, is a group deficient because it lacks certain kinds of legitimation or delegitimation tools? And and there, I think I think you're saying they lack the the basic value of assigning humanity to to uh, enslaved peoples. But of course, part of Cobb's appeal was that these people are better off in a state of enslavement. So he he does try to combat that, right? Sure, sure. I mean, and so part of this though is is not just the my my sort of statement that they lacked the same sense of humanity that the anti-slavery crowd had, but that if you're computing the utility of slavery, you're and you don't look at the cost to the enslaved people, you're, you, you haven't had a comprehensive look at the institution, right? I mean, I think that's the, that's the, the abolitionist is even leaving aside the, the lack of humanity of it. It's just like, are we calculating the um, utility to the now free person of saying, hey, I'm not going to go work in the sugarcane? Don't you think Cobb thought he was doing that? I mean, when he talked about how enslavement was, you know, uh, setting the slaves free would actually be detrimental to uh, the formerly enslaved people. Now he did that poorly. Like I would criticize his his biological theory, right? right. His historical theory, his right. uh, his theory of like uh, you know whatever the equilibrium economic point would be in the long run, even if there yeah. were short term you know dislocations. I, there's lots I would criticize from my vantage point, and I think he's truly a villain, <laughs> you know, an academic villain in the history of academics. Uh, so I, I'm not trying to get him off the hook. I'm just trying to think about like what try, it was. Put, yeah, no, no, no. It's a great, it's would, a great question. You you're do, you're right? putting a yeah. fine point on exactly where where does he go off the rails, right? I mean, I think all of those places. But I I, I also think you know this theory, uh, this hierarchy theory that like some people are best suited to be enslaved, and um, they achieve their high point as humans when they are under the tutelage of, you know, great white master or something seems to me, I, I, I'd go further, I think, and, and say, I don't think that that's, you know, well demonstrated. I mean, he's, I don't, I don't think <laughs> by he's, him, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. By yeah. him. Yeah. By him. Yeah. yeah. Right. We, yeah, we all understand, but, but I mean, even in his own, I mean, what's the evidence that he has of that? He's, he's like, well, you know, uh, my father had a, uh, a slave who lived to, you know, age 90 and she'd only worked for like 10 years or something. And then she lived to dance at the wedding of her great granddaughter. So, I mean, it's just like very anecdotal, the, the anecdotal yeah. and the right. He compares them to, to the Haitian experience and, and things which had happened in Liberia and pointing out right. the instability right. and the inability to create stable economies there. And he's saying, well, this, this must be related to the composition, the mental and, and moral composition of the people who make up those societies. That's so, his so there, argument, there right? There are two strands of the argument that I recall seeing in the book. On the one hand, you can make an argument, a pro-slavery argument about the benefit to the enslaved persons that they're better off in this state than they would be otherwise. In freedom. And yeah. an analytically separate point about the fact that 
the existence of this caste of enslaved persons allows the people who are enslaving them to achieve levels of leisure, learning, and accomplishment that they would not otherwise achieve. Right. Really important point. So there are two parallel arguments. And doesn't one of those fade over time? And which one is it? I can't remember now. Yeah, they do. No, it's a great great point. Um, And so what you see in the sort of pro-slavery literature of the 1820s, 1830s is a lot of the way in which um, slavery is good for white people. It makes white, all white people equal. There's a class below them who does the laboring, and then that allows the white people to achieve the greatness of civilization. In response to the growing anti-slavery literature, initially the anti-slavery literature said, like, we need to get rid of slavery because the enslaved people are going to rise up and kill us. And then they began to shift and no longer saw the enslaved person as like savage beast. They began to see the enslaved person as proto-citizen in waiting. As the anti-slavery literature elevated the enslaved people, the pro-slavery literature then had to have a response to this, right? They can't, this is like, well, these are human beings and now we need to have a different argument. And the different argument that they have is that enslaved people are better off in slavery. So it goes from slavery good for white people, that's the argument of the 1830s and 1840s, to in the 1850s, then the argument is, oh, slavery is actually good for the enslaved people. Um, And it's really interesting the way in which that dialogue takes place, right? You see as each side is trying to craft a more effective argument. And uh, I think that's one of the cool and, and interesting things is there's a, a really terrific book. Um, Sarah Roth, who's a, who's a history professor up at, up at Widener in, in Philadelphia, which gets at she's not she doesn't do this from a legal perspective, but she does this from a sort of looking, tracing out the changes in anti-slavery literature and the changes in pro-slavery literature. I think this story is a little bit different for in the in the legal literature. Cobb has some of both of those arguments. Um, and the judges, you know, continue to have more of the like, whoa, we need to be careful because the enslaved people are going to rebel. Hmm. And the judges are a beat behind or a, a beat or two behind. And that I guess that's not surprising. Judges usually are right. It makes sense. It also it recalls sense. the it, earlier conversation that they're it's kind of flitting between those those two opposed and, and incompatible notions of the humanity of the slaves. Yeah, right. It, right. And it may not be just that the judges are behind, but the judges are concerned with some of the practical aspects that the people who are engaged in this sort of, you know, slavery, good or bad argument don't have to be right there. They can be a little bit more freewheeling, whereas the judges are maybe more bound to, holy cow, what will this precise decision regarding freeing of enslaved people um, what will the implication of that be? I mean, I think it's that's one of the great virtues of legal history is that it's it's grounded, I think, a little bit more in, um, you know, concern about uh, what is the the implication of this decision going to be. In a way, this sort of takes on an air of inevitability. Christian, when you were asking before about Cobb and the quality of his of his enterprise as a piece of scholarship and and if the shift to the argument um, good for white people goes to better for enslaved people, then. I mean, these are, in a way, it gets cast as an increasingly empirical question over time, right? That that it goes from a first principle, look, they're not people at all, therefore we're better off, 
to, oh, they are, I guess I have to recognize their people in some sense, but but they're better off too, right? Well, now I can actually compare, and, and now you were talking before about Goodell's book, right, where yeah. you can say, okay, is it really true that free labor jurisdictions are have working people who are better off or worse off than enslaved persons? At some point, it you can figure out, well, yeah, here are the ways in which no one would trade places with these enslaved people. And so we recognize empirically that it's just, it's just, Cobb, you're just incorrect as a matter of fact, even if you weren't incorrect as a matter of principle. Sure, there's that. And then there's also the sort of, you know, Republican Party free labor ideology argument that if folks are given some opportunity to make money for themselves, they're going to be much more industrious than if they're enslaved. And so, yeah, I mean, and that that's a, a critique that gets sort of built up, um, you know, 1856 to, to 1860. Boy, I almost uh, want to keep, <laughs> I almost want to push on that further because it, it shows th- this interesting kind of like equality of, of Southern whites pursued through slavery and, and its connection with the Democratic Party and even Democratic Party values that we see today, right, about the relative equality of workers and, and wealthy people. And then the Republican idea about free labor is, you know, the there is some continuity with the modern parties, even if the Southern strategy flipped everything mm. around. You know what I mean? But I, I don't want to. I don't want to. It's where we get off the sort of the capitalism aspect. One is that say there's out from UPenn Press to literally today a book on capitalism and slavery, which the chapters I've seen look look really terrific, and it gets at this sort of you know response to this sort of idea that the South was less um, sort of economically oriented. Um, maybe they weren't as technologically advanced. They weren't, but but they were still very, very focused on on making a profit. So I'm sorry, I, I just wanted to, I mean, no, I, it, yeah. I think that's another sort of piece of this puzzle, probably not for this discussion, but the, the extent to which slavery was, was uh, about making money and not about these sorts of more cultural, everybody's going to be, the white people are all going to be equal arguments. Well, feel free to kind of either of you guys to, to kick me and tell me I'm a dumb dumb and that we should talk about something else. Because I, I keep wanting to return to this idea of legitimation of these values and what makes this bad and how – because I'm imagining like being alive at that time and, and, and how you would combat this scholarship given the tools that you have and what, what other right. people would find persuasive. And, and I'm kind of connecting it with the – Somewhat early, like the middle, the middle years of the gay marriage debate. Yeah, I've got this idea that the decision about who or what composes the community of equals, the entities that have to be given consideration as subjects and self-determining things in themselves and have to be thought of as equivalent to you. You know, I should think of their welfare the same as mine. And, and because exactly because people can't do that very well, law comes in and forces us to treat each other's welfare. It's basically equivalent. You know, that idea of the community of equals, you know, one, one way of thinking about it is that is that there are some basic values we have which imply some things about the shape of that community and, and who's in it, right? And maybe there are basic values at that time, which says that basically whites were in that community of equals and, and blacks weren't and other and abolitionists were saying, no, that's, it's different than that. But what if it's not like that? What if the decision about the community of equals is in fact a, very, a basic decision? It, it, in other words, it implies values. Your values you can derive from that decision about who and what you let into community of equals so that there really isn't a way 
to delegitimate Cobb other than just to say, you're wrong. These people are, in fact, equal. <laughs> the, the, the debate about whether equal consideration should be given to... Yeah, I see the argument. It's, I think it's a really important one. What you put your finger on is precisely the battle that took place between the anti-slavery and the pro-slavery forces, right? One of the, one of the, the points of, of conflict was, are people of African descent, are free people of African descent going to be considered as citizens of the United States? Or are they beyond the, you know, protection of the Constitution? This is part of Tawny's Dred Scott decision, which is, you know, just, just it's, it's a piece of a much larger debate. You can say Cobb was, you know, correct within his own sphere of thinking when if you say, well, we don't care about the interest of the enslaved, then did you, you know, did these slave owners make more money when they were able to get people to do work for them for free um, or when they had to pay for that? Right. I mean, I, I, I suppose in that way, if you if you erase completely the calculations, then it may be that, you know, if I can get somebody to do work for me for free, that is to my advantage more than if I have to pay for that. I, I mean, it, it, but the, the, the fault line then what the anti-slavery um, forces brought to the table was, you know, pointing out that what had been done was erasing um, these interests of other, of other humans. Well, I think about gay marriage in this respect. Yeah, I just think about, you know, we've got this principle of equal protection. And, and clearly that means that, that you can't arbitrarily deny certain classes of people the right to marry. You can deny young people the right to marry. You could deny um, uh, based on consent grounds. And there are all kinds of principles that you might use to decide when, what is a good enough justification for the denial of, of the right to marry. But at some point, that's a, the decision about which groups and which categories of things are equal is, is ultimately a political decision but one which is maybe given over to the Supreme Court to manage, which is why I have no problem with the Burgerfell. Because um, at some point, you know, as people got to know, it started to know that they knew more gays than they thought they did <laughs> and that they had an interest in those people's lives, right? That's a political process of enlarging our sense of the, of the relevant community as to whom there is no good reason to keep them from equal rights of enjoyment of various uh, – of society. And at some point, you look across at the people who still disagree and you say, you know what? There's nothing left in this debate but for you to lose it, right? There's nothing more to do here but to defeat you. And I think the role of empathy here that there's – the reason why I think you're on to something very important here about a basic incommensurability, a, a, right. a fact that there – it looks like we're standing on the same planet but we're not mm -hmm. uh, as between these two views. This, this should be allowed – and indeed is, is required to be allowed, and the other view, this should never happen. There's something, I mean, if you think about the, the slavery context in the cases that we were talking about and the other case that was so compelling, I think I'm remembering this right, the state against the Negro will and, the, and Judge Gaston's opinion. For sure. You know, this notion of... T tell us about that one. If it... So it's, it's another one involving physical violence and the limits of physical violence of a master on an enslaved person. And, you, and, and just, I'm just trying to create this, this sort of image of you can envision this, this uh, or think of a scene in 12 Years a Slave or something like that, if you've seen that movie, where, you know, you, <laughs> oh, this white person who is beating th this black person, right? And 
they either see that person as someone who is because they're a person, if they have just as much right to beat me as I have to beat them, like you either see that or you don't, right? You either that's either the reality you inhabit or it's not. This person who's gay has as much right to be married to their loved one as I have to be married to mine. You either see that or you don't at some fundamental level. It seems to me it's the same kind of empathy divide or empathy union of reality. Um, yeah, I think there is something irreducible there. I, I think I think that some really thoughtful observations on that um, and, and that sort of expands some, builds out some things I, I had not thought a, a lot about. But it seems to me as though there's some of these ways in which you've, I'm not sure it's it's just a, a question about sort of values, um, of sort of like, are we going to be fundamentally pro-slavery or anti-slavery? I think you could have somebody who, um, you know, ends up saying, well, I, you know, I'm in favor of slavery because it will benefit the white community who could at the same time understand that that the cost of slavery is greater than the overall benefit, uh, right? You could, I mean, I think Cobb could have said, yeah, acknowledge, geez, I'm not looking at um, the value of freedom to enslaved people, but I'm, I'm less interested in that. Yeah, that's the sense um, in which, you know, if, in this debate, if you could somehow show the people involved in the debate the movie of the future worlds implied by their positions, would they say, based on the preferences they had at time zero, yeah, I was wrong. I'd rather, I'd rather you know, agree with you and, and, and go along with your movie you know, and see how it unfolds. I, I mean, I like to think that somebody like Cobb was sufficient. You know, you just sort of think about what would, you know, you could transport him to today. You know, you'd like to think he was sufficiently oriented towards empiricism. Like, yeah, you know, at the time it looked... <laughs> That looked like a good decision, but I, you know, I, I would, would feel differently uh, about this. And it is, I mean, so one way to test that kind of like, you know, time machine is to look at people before and after the Civil War. Cobb obviously dies at the battlefield at Fredericksburg, so we can't test that with him. But there's a number of people who survived the war who you know, started off viciously pro-slavery and then by the end, um, and maybe part of this is they're just trying to get back in the good graces, but say, you know, um, we're better off today having emerged from a, a world of slavery. These people aren't the progenitors of the Klan and they aren't the enemies of Reconstruction. I mean, are there people who kind of cross so over? Some of that, right. I mean, it's a great question. So what's the limit? How far is one going to move over time? I mean, so, so for sure, there's a lot of people who come back from the war and they're going to be like, we are going to reestablish white supremacy in every way we possibly can. Um, and that's Klan and it's violence and denying African-Americans rights to votes. So yeah. I, and it's, um, birth, it's birth of a nation. The first it's birth movie. of a nation yeah. for, for later generation, for sure. But it's interesting. I think there are some people who can, you know, look at this. I'm thinking there's a governor in North Carolina. And it may be that he was trying to get back in the good graces with the federal government, but, you know, you start saying, you know, looking back on this, um, slavery was a bad idea. <laughs> and it's, it's interesting that you'd have people make, I mean, and I don't think that's the, that's the, you know, takeaway from, from this. I, I think the, the key part of, of the book, of course, is showing that 
though the people we all admire are the anti-slavery crowd, that in this time period, right, 1831, Nat Turner Rebellion to the Civil War, the people who held sway, certainly in the South and to a great extent in the North, are proponents of slavery, right? And that at colleges, you have faculty telling the wealthy and well-educated that what they're doing is right. Um, Shocker. Yeah, shocker. And then they, <laughs> they and then they come up with, you know, these kinds of biased studies to and you know, it's religion and it's political theory. It's a it's a theory of of hierarchy that flips Thomas Jefferson's statement, all people are created equal. It's a it's history grounded and economics grounded argument. Um in every way that they can think of, um anthropology, they argue that slavery is right, that hierarchy is important, and that any change from that will lead to disaster. How, how important do you think it is? I mean, this is always the question, are academics basically epiphenomenal in the sense that, you know, they may reflect or fight against what's going on at the time, but basically have no influence over the over the thing, right? Uh, over what actually happens. Of or, course. Or are they important collaborators? So it's a great question, right? That's, I mean... I saw somebody, I think Annette Gordon-Reed up at Harvard um, was tweeting the other day about how, um, uh, you know, academics don't have as much influence anymore. And my sort of response was, if you want to be perceived as influential, here's how you do it. You tell the wealthy and well, the people in power that what they're doing is right. And then, you know, you'll be on the lecture circuit. And everybody, go, we're going to follow this person's new book on economics <laughs> or property or whatever, right? I think the ideas of these academics are great gauges of um, what's going on. You know, they're sort of sponges. They're soaking up the culture around them. They're maybe adding some, you know, they're building out some of this theory. And sometimes they are themselves key actors, right? So Thomas Cobb, in addition to co-founding what becomes University of Georgia Law School and being an important legal educator and treatise writer, then goes to, is it Macon, wherever the, the um, capital of, of Georgia is, and, you know, argues zealously in favor of secession and then takes to the battlefield um, to defend slavery, right? So he is an important actor um, in all sorts of levels, the intellectual defense, the political um, mobilization and then the military defense of slavery. If the kind of fluidity between legal academia and policymaking, you know, has been there for a long time and we continue to see that. And, and then, you know, it's not surprising that that fluidity increases when the legal academics are willing to stand up for the status quo and the powerful. Is there something special that happens that makes the realists and the crits possible? Or is that an anomaly? Is there is something which spurred that? I mean, I'm showing the, my so ignorance really of the arc question. of legal history so, here. But, so, yeah. so um, I, I want to come back to that in just a second, but, but, but let me just say, but, but Cobb was not, we're going to come back to the 1920s to the 19, you know, today, I guess, um, in just a second. But, you know, Cobb isn't the only one. There's this guy, um, uh, James Holcomb, who's a law professor at UVA, who also is, you know, writing about, you know, g going around the state, giving lectures on how slavery is consistent with natural law. You know, don't think that like Jefferson was right. Jefferson was wrong. He was too um, anti-slavery. 
that what we need is hierarchy. And then and then Holcomb is in the Virginia legislature and he argues vociferously um, for secession. And he's like, this, this will be the end if we don't secede. And of course, all these people are wrong. They, you know, the slavery could have and would have almost surely continued for decades had there not been the Civil War. It certainly wouldn't have ended in 1865. Mm-hmm. Um, they're among the worst, most self-defeating politicians on the face of the planet. Although maybe we should have, I'm not in favor of these tons of monuments, but maybe we should have monuments to them for everything they did to, you know, promote the the cause of freedom completely inadvertently, of course. And at the cost of thousands of lives. At the cost of, of, yeah, thousands of lives and treasure. You know, the Jefferson contrast is so interesting because it's at the time when it looks like the elites think that the institution of slavery is waning and is going to fade, right? That they're willing to express the kind of ambiguity the kind of moral uh, qualms uh, about, you know, and Jefferson's famous metaphor of, you know, we have the wolf by the ear. Right. Um, And and so it's, it's such an indictment that when you read, by the time you reach Cobb's era, when the number of enslaved persons has gone from 700,000 to 4 million and the amount of money involved in turning Mm -hmm. away from this institution would, you know, so, so we need to preserve this, moral catastrophe because if we don't we'll have a financial catastrophe like that's such an indictment of the people who reached that conclusion at that time right well i mean i think that's why they spin the moral you know argument as well right it's not immoral it's protected by it was blessed by the bible um the enslaved people will be better off they're treated better i mean this is that whole ebenezer starnes right but there's a way in which self-interest is really sort of underwriting. Of course. When, when you contrast the, the sort of the Jefferson-era Enlightenment project and the way that it might ultimately lead you to um, to let go of slavery and the and the notion that that's woven in with the event, the, the fact that Congress can pass 180-whatever, uh, prohibit the trade if it wants yeah. to, right? That, yeah, that yeah. Enlightenment perspective, com- contrasting with the, the kind of comp- self-interest uh, of people who were advocating for the for the expansion of slavery in the 1850s, I mean, just it, to me, it just demonstrates how how much more depraved they were in a way. Well, you could easily see than the Enlightenment. You could easily folklore. see. I think people in the future criticize us on similar grounds that, in the name of like preserving and preventing preserving our economy and preventing its collapse, preventing the collapse of the labor market and and a reduced standard of living that we insist on not letting people cross arbitrary borders, right? That we preserve the severe gradient in economic fortunes that exist across the U S Mexican and, you know, further down South Guatemalan borders, right? That for sure. How will you, how will you justify that in 200 years that, you know, that you, in order to preserve your own standard of living, you insist that people not, come to where the jobs are. There are tons of examples like that, right? And then sure. the event, you know, if humanity survives another 200 years, we're all going to be vegetarians, I assume. And people would be like, wait, you were like going off to enjoy, you know, a, a state dinner after talking about how terrible slavery was, <laughs> you know, didn't you, can, can't you understand the, yeah. how did you not protect defenseless people from genocide in many, many different places? Good point. But, but, but <laughs> do, were we going to swing back to I, 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 this sort of what allowed progressive era, you know, legal realists and, and forward 
to behave differently. Yeah, my point is such a basic, dumb, dumb not, not lack of yeah, legal history point. Can you restate it? Because well, I don't no, even understand I mean, what you're asking it's, about. It's just like, was that a fluke that the legal realists were able to... A fluke in what sense? A fluke in the sense that the academy became populated with people who wrote against the interests of the powerful. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really interesting issue. One of the things that I think it's wrapped up with is the growth of academic freedom, right? The, in an era when you could and would be fired um, for saying something anti-slavery in many Southern places. And if you jailed, or, or jailed, right? Or I mean, jailed, yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah, if you were lucky, yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> Um, but I mean, there's a lot of academics, Southern academics who are fired um, for speaking out against slavery. And then there's some Northern academics who are fired for being too pro-slavery. Right? Hmm. Washington College, what's now Washington and Lee University, has a, a vocal anti-slavery president. At some point, this is in the 1840s, he's, they're like, we're done with you. You're too vocal. Goodbye. Hmm. And they hire somebody who had been fired by Miami University of Ohio for being too pro-slavery, right? I mean, it's just like, it, you have this, anyway. Yeah. So part of this is, is a growth of academic freedom. And it's a, it's a story that I wish the people who were writing on academic freedom told more. Um, this, is, this is what I really don't know, and I'm sure there's an answer to it. Like, was the rise of the realists basically a return to normality in, in terms of academic freedom? Because there's no. something about slavery, right, which, which requires all of these other annexed restrictions on liberty, right? Banning right. of political parties, banning of speech. Like in order to preserve that hierarchy, you need lots of other authoritarian laws in order to make that work. I mean, that's part of what we've been talking about earlier in the conversation. So there's something about the, the number of slaves, the nature of slavery, the nature of the debate about that, which chilled freedom of thought during that period. And, and the question is, is that, was that an aberration in terms of freedom of thought, at least in the American experience? Maybe we could go I, all I the way back to so ancient think. Greece and talk about, you know, academic freedom. But I'm just, in terms of the American experience, I wonder yeah, if this yeah. is a return to normality or not. No, no, no. Academic freedom in the United States is, is largely a late 19th, I mean, it's a struggle that continues well into the 20th century, right? But it's a late 19th century phenomenon. I mean, people are being routinely fired um, for issues unrelated to slavery, you know, sort of religious schools that have religious um, affiliation are routinely firing faculty. There's a uh, there's a school up in um, Lexington, Kentucky, Transylvania, um, that's routinely firing people as the sort of the, the, who's in charge in the religious denomination changes. One of the important sort of um, variables in this multiple regression equation that explains why you can have these the legal realists and why they aren't fired in greater numbers relates to academic freedom. I think it relates also to changing political orientation, right? So you've got um, when Douglas is at Yale in the 30s, there's more support for a robust um, regulatory movement than there was in 1900. Yeah, I mean, certainly the Great Depression is, you know. And Great Depression is, is a huge is, watershed. Yeah. We've got to ask our buddy Logan Sawyer about this, too. He would no, we some, need to get Logan, and, yeah. and that would be, it'd be a great a great conversation. Um, yeah, who is it? Um, Charles Beard, right, the, the great progressive historian um, who writes this uh, economic interpretation of the Constitution and is gets into some trouble, academic freedom trouble, I guess. Um, is the University of Wisconsin, early 20th century, says something like, it isn't a question of returning power to the people. It's a question of getting it for them for the first time. <laughs> and so, you know, sort of the progressive era was more tolerant of critique of the powerful than had generally been permitted 
before then. Although there there are episodes, Jacksonian democracy, I was quite critical of established wealth. Some of this must be about frame of reference in, in terms of baselines. If you're if one of the things going on in the world is Bolshevism um, and the execution of the czar, talking about this or that labor policy and and moving the dial a notch or two, it seems a bit tame by comparison, right? So if, if part of part of the concern or, or part of what might make uh, more critical activities possible is you know compared to what. And there are places in the world where the compared to what is, you know, people getting dragged is, is out of buildings and shot. Yeah. yeah, and of course, there. I mean, in the World War I era, there's a lot of people who are um, coerced into leaving the United States. You know, you've got a lot of immigrants from Eastern Europe who um, find the United States a quite inhospitable place, and mm-hmm. so they return. So it's there's. I mean, there's all these sorts of stories about, um, and then the academy's more genteel um, in many ways, so they're going to be more tolerant than a lot of the sort of the public. Yeah, no, it's an interesting. Just to sort of return to the book for for a minute. I mean, so so what I try and do there is is set up, you know, the first third of it, which looks at pro slavery thought in the academy and tries to map out um, a lot of these connections among faculty, among students. Um, among visiting dignitaries who give talks. And, and I think one of the cool pieces of that story is how widespread the pro-slavery thought is. You know, Princeton um, is hosting people into the 1850s who are giving viciously pro-slavery addresses, some anti-slavery as well, but the primary focus is sort of Southern schools. UGA obviously looms large on that, Alabama, Ole Miss, UVA, uh, William & Mary, UNC, a lot of schools. And then, you know, I've got this sort of middle section that looks at these ideas in public, and I'm trying to cast a light from the anti-slavery crowd as well, right? So I bring in Goodell, Fred, Frederick Douglass, Harry Beecher Stowe, who are critiquing this sort of Southern legal thought, these ideas about hierarchy and slavery. And then the last and probably, you know, most important part, the last third, 40% of the book is about how these ideas appear in the judiciary and then sometimes in the legislature, right, where these sort of are the ideas that people grab onto and use the vocabulary um, that they use as they debate secession. And it's just sort of, you know, what I would try and do is create a sense of how widespread these ideas are, how um, they convey well the sort of economic impulse that underlies, you know, putting shackles on, on, on other human beings and forcing them to, to do work for us for free. And it's not only the revelations in the book, you know, about how widespread they were, and it, it's the, the connection between the talking and the doing, between the ideas and the actuality They are activist scholars, yeah, right? Yeah. I mean, this is an era, you know, so the, the, probably the one address that everybody reads in college is Emerson's, you know, American scholar, where he's like, I want you to don't believe the past. Scholars should go out and retest everything and be engaged in the world. And these jokers are engaged in the world, mm-hmm. right? They are, they bring, you know, speakers to campus to, who are politicians, and then they send out students to be politicians and um, business people. And the faculty are, you know, doing this also. They're writing and they're sometimes engaged in politics themselves, and they own lots of people. 
And then they all go off, you know, to to work and promote the institution of slavery. It's very sobering in terms of the the moral accountability and the, you know, I was reminded a number of times when I was in looking at the portions of the last third of the book about uh, the the sort of Hart Fuller debate chewing over the role of Nazi judges and and how to reconcile yourself as a judicial officer in that context. Uh, similarly with uh, dealing with slavery as a judge and or as a law professor or a commentator. And it is very it's very sobering. Yeah, I think I mentioned this last time Al was on because I occasionally put state against man in my in my property course. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons is to is to show students how there's nothing about the shape or flavor of those arguments that is foreign and right. therefore revolting. It's a really interesting right. observation. Yeah. And and yeah. so that's why, you know, as we've discussed before, you know, Hart's idea that rejection of a political and legal system is a further fact, right? It is a, it is a further act than observing that something is not law based on deductive logical or, or you know, logical moral grounds. Like there's something more you have to do yeah. beyond observing whether something is legal. And the, the fact that that's always in front of you right? That you always need to test yourself and be skeptical of your own values is, I mean, that's what I always found attractive about Hart's position in the Hart-Fuller debate mm-hmm. and about, you know, taking a critical eye, try, trying to transport yourself back in the time of state against man and take a critical, uh, make a critical judgment of that opinion and, you know, imagining what that's like. And it seems to me it is about more, you know, moral rejection rather than legal dispute. Hmm. I don't know, Al. Yeah, yeah. Have, no, have, we, have we done this? Have we done justice to this? Yeah, we don't have any more time, really. But I don't know if we've done justice course, to your fantastic course, work. Uh, thank you. Love you guys. I mean, there's, um, you know, one of my hopes for the book is that it will, um, you know, help sort of start a, a bunch of these kinds of conversations. I'm not, I'm not sure any of them can be settled, or you'd want them to be settled. But you know, sort of, what's the nature of jurisprudence? How's it? inspired by um, and grows up around the institution of slavery? How does it defend slavery in some instances and then defeat it in others? Um, all the stuff about the academy, obviously, but then and then the nature of legal thought and how that is, you know, so deeply entwined with considerations of economics, empiricism. It's just, yeah, and I, I, I you know, I almost don't want to stop because I just think of, you know, the role of imagination in law is just such a recurrent theme in my own thinking about law, right? It's the ability to think like, what is it like to be someone else? What is it like? And, and here, I mean, one of the things that really spoke to me in, in your chapter, especially about Cobb, is how you can try to make a tool of that imagination and do it so badly. Yeah. You know, it, like it, there's, how do you know? You try to use your imagination, imagine what it's like to be someone else. And you, Cobb imagines, well, I'm, I'm a slave and I need a white person in order to make me, in order to make me the best that I can be. Right. And yeah, it's just a yeah. total failure of imagination. It's, it's, a, I mean, Cobb is, um, the, the treatise is, I mean, it was what I was six, seven, 800 pay. I mean, it's an enormous, it's an enormous treatise. It in, he deserves somebody to go through and um, do a you know, sort of definitive study of, of that. I mean, I was just able to work on, you know, the high, hit the highlights on that. But there, that is um, begging for a, a really serious um, investigation of all of the sorts of different modes of thinking. And you know, he's criticizing the anti-slavery judges for being too sentimental 
um, and not using legal reasoning. And it's sort of, you know, this goes to y'all's e- e- question about sort of what is what is the nature of law? Why do we think something's legal versus non-legal reason? I mean, there's just so many. And then, and then like how he puts it together with the hundreds in the low hundreds of, of different books that he's, you know, been able to, in some cases, bring to Athens and in other cases, you know, has examined when he's been on trips outside of Athens. And there's just so much there. It's a really rich um, uh, book that is the capstone of, of thinking, but then also looks forward to the future. It brings a lot of things together. And then you know, it's cited, I don't know, like 30 times between when it's published and in the end of the civil war. I mean, it's a very popular book among Southern judges. You know, they, they latch on to this and then yeah. you know, they get in, involved in his sort of um, talk about um, natural science. And is like one, one judge is citing him and is likening enslaved africans to orangutans i mean it's just it's like holy smokes the 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 intellectual world that they inhabit is um very different um and bizarre and but worthy of you know it's just like trying to get like what was going on there i can imagine the book that you have in mind going through this this book would be basically it would be an academic a study in academic failure like how to like you can imagine like one of these TV shows, like when academics go bad or when academics <laughs> yeah. attack. Right. It's like it's, it's a total like case study in how the the scholarly road can lead to ruin. And and, and, and what in the, the just to reconstruct the mind of like and what was going on. And I mean, you know, I mean, I, I think the, that chapter is my favorite one in the book, but it's I don't know, 30 pages or 20, 30. I'm not sure. It's short. And there's just so much more to there. There, I, I don't think it'll be me. Um, I think my next project's going to be on um, the people that I really respect, which are African American intellectuals in the early 20th century, and how they pointed us um, towards the road to freedom. Can't can't wait for that. We're going to have you back for that, but we will have you back before that. I think. I think. I, should... I hope so because that one will be that'll be that'll be another 10 years or something. But um, no, hey, thanks, guys. I really I had a great time.